Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from the future, it's Romeo Mora. Romeo, how's the future looking? You know, I wish the future prepared me for my present day, because it didn't. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, we are going to be talking about Back to the Future. Back to the Future is a 1985 American science fiction film directed by Robert Zemeckis. Set in 1985, the story follows Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly, a teenager accidentally set back to 1955 in a time traveling DeLorean automobile built by his eccentric scientist friend, Dr. Emmett Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd. Trapped in the past, Marty inadvertently prevents his future parents' meeting, threatening his very existence, and is forced to reconcile the pair and somehow get back to the future. The film was followed by two sequels, Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3, and also stars Leo Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Thomas F. Wilson. Joining us to talk about the Back to the Future films, returning for the second time, it's Wesley Riddle. Wes, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. Well, we're so happy to have you back. It was actually you who suggested that we should do Back to the Future. So why did you want to talk about Back to the Future? You know, it was always one of my favorite film trilogies growing up. I had like a trilogy of trilogies that I would always kind of go back to as like comfort films as a kid. Um, That was Star Wars, of course, Indiana Jones and Back to the Future. Very cool. Same for me. I didn't watch the third one very much, but I did watch the first two quite often when Whenever it would pop up on television. There's just something like really enjoyable about going back to 1955. And then I, I like futuristic stuff. So when it advanced itself to 2015, I thought it was pretty cool. So when did you first watch Back to the Future? I was trying to think of that. I'm not quite sure. I imagine it probably came on the TV at some point and I got interested in it. But my kind of core memory is having like the three pack VHS trilogy. And I would just rewatch those with my dad all cool. the time. Romeo, do you remember the first time you watched Back to the Future? Three weeks ago? In all honesty, three weeks ago, all the way through, I discovered it late on my own. Like, I was aware of all of the cultural references, like the hoverboards, um, the significant dates going back to the future. I do remember segments of that third film because I feel like that's always the film that gets played constantly is that third film. So I've seen, like, the finale of that whole franchise a couple of times. You are very late to the game. (laughs) I am. I am. I am. Like, I was in charge of my own, like, introduction to like sci-fi and nerd culture. So uh, Wesley, you watched this film for the first time. What was it that stuck with you watching it or even sticks with you now upon rewatches? I think it's just kind of the fun urban contemporary adventure. I mean, I know this is a film from 1985, but it feels still pretty modern to me, almost in a mm-hmm. nostalgic way. You know, unlike Star Wars or Indiana Jones, which seems so fantastical and far away, Back to the Future seems like some wacky stuff that it's more a comedic film, but it also feels more grounded in reality in some ways. And I think a lot of that has to do with all the branding found in the movies, like the Nike shoes, the Pepsi drinks, the Goodyear tires, the DeLorean, all this stuff you can kind of touch and feel. It's a movie with a lot of texture. And I like that a lot. It's strange because it is said 1985, but it still somehow feels like you are able to connect with it. Like I was born after this movie came out and I have no memory of the 80s, but it feels like I live in this mm-hmm. town. I lived and had these moments that he does, you know, like the skateboarding and the principal and it just all of these like little details of the town that just kind of feel timeless in a way, which is a funny thing to say in a time travel <laughs> movie. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. And I, I wonder if that has to do with the impact of this movie. I feel like it does have a lot of cultural impact and a lot of inspiration of other movies and TV shows. Even something like Stranger Things. I, I forget the character's name, but the one with the big fluffy hair, he wears the same Nike shoes that Marty McFly does in Back to the Future. They're kind of these hard to find Nikes. So many films I think take little bits of inspiration that I feel like going back and watching Back to the Future, all of that kind of coalesces and you just kind of get the source of all this inspiration. So I I guess my argument is kind of like the archetype of 80s movies in a way. Oh, for sure. And the other thing that really stuck with me about this film is that, you know, when you watch it you don't really think about it when you're a kid, but as an adult I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my god, this script is amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Romeo, I I wonder if you have any thoughts on this, because I was just thoroughly impressed how many like organic payoffs that the script sprinkles in throughout the movie and even like throwaway lines like the Twin Pines Mall. And then later on, 
is known as the Lone Pine Mall. That's a little funny payoff that they did there. Or the clock tower. You thought it would be like a throwaway like thing. Like it's significant to the story. I think because I waited so long and I'm a massive fan of Doctor Who, I enjoyed and I spotted all of those payoffs quicker and more because it was genius. That first film, everything connected. And even that second film, you got payoffs that you thought like, oh, we'll never in a million years revisit that time period again. But then in that second film, you go back to that time period, 1955. We're like, oh, it's perfect. It's a good script. If like if you're interested in film writing and doing sort of playing with time or we're setting up payoffs, it's a good script to go line by line and see how the writer set up all the mechanics and then how they were able to pay it off. Even something as silly as like, oh, I scammed Libyan terrorists. <laughs> He's like one line. And then later on in the movie, what happens? But a bunch of Libyan terrorists pull up up in a van and gun them down. It's certainly one of those movies where you actually have to pay attention to every single line that's being said and every single visual clue that's going on in the movie. Yeah, I was just really impressed. And another thing that I noticed now watching it as an adult, I'm like, you know what? This movie's actually pretty dark when you really think about it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of dark themes. And this is something that we're going to talk about more later when we talk about some of these actors. It is kind of a, a scary thing to be like transported back to 1955 you don't know what to do you're just kind of wandering around and you run into your dad you run into your mom who has the hots for you and (laughs) there's even an attempted rape scene towards in the third act that you're just like whoa this is intense this is scary like that scene alone is very scary so i yeah i don't know if you wondered if if that ever crossed your mind whether as a kid or as an adult wes that this movie is actually pretty dark yeah i think it walks kind of of a tightrope with its tone because at the end of the day it's a comedic uplifting movie I feel like but you're right a lot of those things are kind of terrifying I really think it's obviously more than just Michael J. Fox but I think like his mannerisms and his playfulness it really is the glue that kind of makes the tone of the movie make sense and it doesn't detract from those kind of scary elements but it just kind of brings them back into the fold a little bit yeah absolutely it should be known that and this is like common trivia now is that Michael J. Fox was actually the original person they wanted for Marty McFly but he was on Family Ties at the time and as people who follow the history of television if you had a gig on television those contracts were no joke another big example of this is Tom Selleck wanting to be Indiana Jones but his contract with Magnum P.I. was like, nope. Yeah, it was absolutely the same for Michael J. Fox. It's like, hey, man, he's doing a great job on Family Ties. We don't want to lose him. And so Robert Zemeckis and his producing and writing partner, Bob Gale, were like, let's cast someone else. It was actually the Universal president, Sidney Scheinberg, who said, let's get Eric Stoltz because I loved him in that Rocky Dennis movie. (laughs) Eric Stoltz was casted and Scheinberg even said like, hey, if it doesn't work out, don't sweat it. We'll recast them. No big deal. So they actually filmed five weeks worth of material with Eric Stoltz before deciding to replace him with Michael J. Fox. And the reason was because Eric Stoltz looked at this script and he thought, this isn't a comedy. This is a drama. This is Mm. a tragedy. And like you're saying, like when it all comes back to Michael J. Fox's like mannerisms and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, he sells it. He can sell it a lot better than Eric Stoltz because Michael J. Fox kind of sees the craziness of it it rather than like the tragedy of it. And I think it also had to do with maybe some sleep deprived was a sleep depravity because when Michael J. Fox was cast and started filming for Back to the Future, he was still working on Family Ties during the daytime. And then he would go work Back to the Future in the evening. There were some nights where he would be driven to wherever he was staying and he would have to be like carried to his bed <laughs> because he was just oh, so wow. exhausted. Anything they could have filmed during the daytime without Michael J. Fox or with having like a body double in, they did it. There's actually a lot of shots in the movie where you think that might be Michael J. Fox, but that's actually a body double. Notably, the beginning of the movie where you see his legs, you see his back, and he's facing the giant amp. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not Michael J. Fox. That's the double. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, this was some movie magic. They really did some really cool stuff with this. I was thinking about that opening when I was watching it, and the way it kind of tracks along all the 
kind of knickknacks and Doc Brown's little shack. And then Marty comes in. You get a real sense of his character in those scenes. That's really interesting to me that that was body double. Yeah. I think that person obviously did a good job mimicking the mannerisms of Michael J. Fox. It was kind of funny when I was watching that opening scene recently because I was thinking, why is it such a like big reveal that this is Marty McFly? I was getting the impression like they were like saving this big reveal that this is Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly. But now I've come to realize when I was doing my research, like, oh, that's because it wasn't actually Michael J. Fox. But yeah, like this whole Eric Stoltz thing was interesting. And in fact, even filming with Eric Stoltz wasn't the most comfortable for the crew and the actors mm-hmm. because apparently Eric Stoltz was method acting. He would yeah. actually stay in character. <laughs> <laughs> method acting for a comedy. That's hilarious. Right. And so he got under the skin of a lot of people on set. So the set was actually kind of tense and he would actually eat lunch on his own. Leah Thompson said that she said that he would eat lunch on his own. But when Michael J. Fox was part of the cast, he would actually eat with the cast and crew for lunch. He, he just got along with everybody better. And yeah, it just made the whole experience of shooting the film a lot better. Right before <laughs> this call, I was I was looking up footage of Eric Stoltz in the movie because I wanted mm-hmm. to see if there are any like scenes. And you can find scenes. They don't have audio. It's really interesting to compare him and Michael J. Fox. Like Stoltz mm-hmm. is obviously just not having as much fun in the world. Um, he's not as animated. And what struck out to me was that his costume's almost totally different. He's wearing all these dark clothes. He's wearing yeah. high top Converse rather than the Nikes. Like he's missing that whole iconic Marty McFly outfit with mm-hmm. the jeans and the jean jacket and the orange vest. No, and the and orange I, vest is so great because it becomes a recurring joke throughout the film. And I think what that was is they were just placating the studio just to prove that only Michael J. Fox could have played this role. Which puts Eric Stoltz in a horrible position because he's trying his hardest to make it work. Well, just apparently for- he even said to a makeup artist, it's like after he was fired, he said, I'm not a comedian. Why would they hire me to be like a comedy actor or put in a comedy performance? Like, so there was definitely some miscommunication about what he was signing up for, yeah. at least from what I'm able to get. No, it seems like they were clearly just using this, using him as a pawn just to prove a point that this casting wouldn't work. They had a clause like it doesn't work out in a couple of weeks. They can recount. They can reshoot those scenes. Didn't that make them miss the release date of the movie too? I think this might have been Scheinberg's doing, but they liked the movie so much from the test screenings that they were like, we need to release this as fast as possible. So they had like special effects people working around the clock to get this done as soon as possible so that it could be released by Independence Day. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it took them like nine weeks worth that post-production work Mm -hmm. to get completed in order to get the movie released at the time they wanted it to be released, which is insane. (laughs) Like it takes a lot, lot longer to uh, work on that stuff. And when you consider that they were already five weeks behind from shooting all that footage with Stoltz, it's crazy. So it made it out in the summer of 1985. It's really cool. Like just because 1985 was such a key factor in the screenplay itself. It's the end of the first film. They had no intention of making a sequel, but the movie was so successful that they're like Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis get a call and say, hey, make another one. That's when they had to put in the work to make another one. But it didn't come out right away. They needed some time to do it. So I think it took, was it four years since the... uh, Yeah. And they decided to film two and three back to back because the what they wrote was basically one movie, but they didn't want to release a four hour cut. So they decided to break them up into two. I'm interested, Wes, to know your impressions of the second film as a child and as an adult, because when I was a kid, I always loved the second one more than the first one. But when I watched it as an adult, I realized this is the first time where I can admit on this podcast where I'm like, you know what? I'm actually wrong on this one. I don't think the second one is as good as the first one, which in some way pains me to stay. I think I just love the future, like going to the future and seeing all the cool things like the Nike shoes and the Joss 3D coming down and the hoverboard. Maybe I'm tell. And the flying cars was really cool. I want my flying car. I was lying. Me too. I want my hoverboard above all else. (laughs) Right? I mean, at the very least, where's our hoverboard? (laughs) I mean, we got the Nike sort of. So yeah, there was just a lot of cool things. I always like looking at that and being as a kid and being like, oh, look at all these cool things. I hope these are things that we get in the future. So um, watching it as an adult, I'm just kind of like, you know what? This isn't as strong as the first one. I can admit that. The first one is basically, from my perspective, a perfect film. To a lot of people, a perfect film. And the second one just kind of pales in comparison. But I still think there's still a lot of fun things to get out of the second movie. So uh, yeah, 
Wes, I want to know your perspective on on the second film. I think my experience pretty much mirrors yours, David. I loved the second film as a kid. I loved the future parts. I also really like the kind of alternate grungy Biff 1980s. It's a pretty short sequence of the movie, but it's very memorable. As an adult, I agree with you. I mean, I know the first movie is so much stronger in terms of screenplay, in terms of just overall being a movie, but I still love the second one. I would say the second one's probably my favorite to watch, but I will concede that the first one is definitely the superior movie. And Romeo, I know you're new to these movies pretty much, but watching the second one and seeing how they have to like intertwine going back to 1955 and then getting glimpses of the future and then seeing what happened in 1955, how it affected the present time at the time, which is 1985. What did you think of Back to the Future Part 2? I felt like there were just too many ideas going in at once. Me, I was very desensitized by it because I've seen far more complicated episodes of Doctor Who. So my brain is sort of trained to handle the weird timey-wimey of things. For me, it didn't bug me as much, but I'm curious to see what the common moviegoer who isn't entrenched in alternate timeline like stories and time travel, if they would enjoy it as much as the first film. And for me, like I have a hard time saying yes, they would, because that second film by itself, instead of what we got in the third film, should have been split into two films. Like that second film, if I were to rewrite it, it would end with Marty McFly going to the future, saving his future kids and end up in this alternate timeline. And it end with him trying to find his way back to fix his mistakes. And that third film will be fixing that mistake. It would have made a much more stronger trilogy. Are you just trying to get out of the Catboys, Romeo? Oh, he is. I am. He and I, Oh, I am. Because I got feelings <laughs> about the West. And I will recommend better Western time travel stuff from Doctor Who. Romeo, to add to your point about this suggestion, I think you have a point there because the reason why they're going to the future is to save the kids, right? It's kind of funny because it's actually a very thin reason to actually go to the future to save them from going to jail, being on like the cover, was it, of like the USA Today newspaper or something like that? Oh, God. It totally conflicts with Doc Brown's feelings on time travel and not messing with the timeline, too. The reason should have been something more catastrophic for them like something they did in the present or something is affecting the future and they have to discover what they did that would be interesting i do think it's a little bit more complicated like yeah in what we see in the film it's just about the one kid but doc brown has this moment of exposition where he's like oh your kid goes to jail and your other kid tries to break him out and then something happens and it apparently messes up their whole family they try to sell it as more than that but it's very thin my my question is why is marty so in his kids so significant to break all of the rules of time travel. That's something that I never understood. I can understand that maybe if his kids, or say the sister, because mm. let's face it, Marty Jr. is never going to amount to anything, but maybe the sister would have. <laughs> she was going to invent space travel, but because her stupid brother did things to me, she tried to help him escape, prevented proper space exploration. That would have made much more sense than, oh, your lights is going to suck. That's not enough reason because they ended up breaking time by needlessly going to the future. I get it why they need to go to the future to set up the second part of the second half of the film, but it just wasn't a strong enough reason. So Romeo, if you had a DeLorean, would you use it to go back and tell Bob Gale to write better reason to go to the future? <laughs> no, because of Doc Brown's reason. Don't mess with the timeline. You'll sit unexpected Bob content. Gale, I need to tell you about Back to the Future 2. What? I need to tell you about Back to the Future 2. It would make a great <laughs> SNL skit. <laughs> because what if I do tell him and he says he's not going to make Back to the Future 2? Then what's going to happen to Michael J. Fox's career? Maybe he doesn't do all the other cool stuff he's supposed to do. I think we still do Teen Wolf. <laughs> Can we briefly talk about Bob Gale? So I have a few things about Bob Gale. One, apparently there's an alternate or a first draft script of Back to the Future Part 2 where they, instead of going back to the 1950s, they go to the 1970s and they see their Marty's parents in kind of a different era. I tried to look this up and people made all these references online about, yeah, you can just go to the Back to the Future website and get it. It looks like they're not hosting it anymore, but I would love to find that script and kind of dig into it. I didn't even um, know about that. That's interesting. Yeah. This is my new goal. I was really hoping to find that and read it before this podcast. Alas, I could not get a hold of it, but it's floating out there somewhere. People have read mm-hmm. it. If Wikipedia is correct, the first movie was written by 
Bob Gale and uh, Robert Zemeckis, but the second two are just written by Bob Gale. I find it interesting for like creating such fun, inventive movies as the Back to the Future trilogy. Bob Gale hasn't really done anything else that I know of that's too interesting. Yeah, actually, I thought that was interesting, too, because I, I looked him up because I was thinking, like, what else has he done? Back to the Future is the only thing I really know of him for. I mean, he, he was collaborating with Zemeckis long before Back to the Future, and they developed commercial and critical failures. <laughs> so, it's a miracle, uh, this movie, I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, it really was. When they pitched the movie, I mean, everybody was rejecting it. And at the time, people wanted, like, a raunchy comedy. They oh, yeah. didn't want what they were pitching. People were all into Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Porky's. Like, that was the scene oh, back then yeah, for yeah. comedies. And Steve Spielberg, he loved it. I mean, he thought it was like a really cool concept, but it just wasn't going to get greenlit. So Zemeckis took the next available job that was given to him, which was directing Romancing the Stone. And because of the success of that movie, that's what was able to help propel getting Back to the Future off the ground. That's pretty interesting. So it's just one of those, hey, do this for me thing. And then you can do whatever you want type of thing. Long history of that with directors. So yeah, Bob Gale, Back to the Future has really been his baby. I mean, he wrote all three films. He helped with the Back to the Future video game that came out by Telltale mm-hmm. Telltale mm-hmm. Games about what five years ago, six years ago, around so. there. Yeah, yeah. So he helped uh, write the plots for that, and I actually watched both of those. So someone made like a supercut of all the cutscenes as if they were like their own movies. So he did like a ah. Back to the Future Part Four and a Part Five, and there's some good plot stuff in there. I'm not gonna yeah. lie. Yeah. <laughs> it was like if they made these into movies, I wouldn't be mad. Right. <laughs> there's also, I believe, a newer comic series that I think started in yes. 2015 written yes. by Bob Gale. IDW is then the publisher. I think the first issue was released on October 21st, 2015. As we all know, that's the day they'll go back to the future. But yeah, he's also worked with Marvel. Yeah, I thought he did a like draft of a Doctor Strange script back in, I think, the 80s. I mean, his longest run was on Amazing Spider-Man. He's working here and there. He's also um, working on the stage musical adaptation. The, what, there's a musical adaptation? Yes. Yes. Oh. yes. I, I know, cool. but, but yeah, he's milking um, this story in Franklin's for all it's worth. And he's doing it successfully because none of the stuff that he's releasing sucks. So And the stuff that does suck, like those video games in the 80s and the early 90s, that's because they didn't want any help from Bob Gale. <laughs> They're like, we're going to do our own thing. God, and imagine if that cartoon like had him in the writer's room. He didn't have a hand in that, did he? Mm-hmm. In that. What was this cartoon? I don't know about that. You don't know about the cartoon? I don't know about the cartoon. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> was it terrible? So, yes. <laughs> I watched a few episodes the other day because I got my hands on the DVDs. It seriously feels like a fever dream. So I do vaguely remember watching these when I was a kid and it just never really stuck with me. But the funny thing about our time of growing up is that everything that was popular got a video game or a TV show or both, like a cartoon mm. or both. I did enjoy how they set up Back to the Future 3 at the end of part two how there was like this letter that was in a safety deposit box for like years and that they were supposed to go to this location at on this day and this time to give this to a marty mcfly and i thought wow that's actually really cool i just Mm -hmm. love how all three films play with time i never felt like it got convoluted and i think the rules were simple enough for me to follow you're also not afraid to have a bit of exposition coming from doc brown i mean there's moments of just him explaining what's going on it like either explaining the plan or explaining how the second movie, how time travel works and how the alternate timelines can happen. And it's all, it's fun to listen to. Yeah, it's all about Christopher Lloyd just being able to sell it. Yeah. Right. So Wes, what'd you think about the third film? It's funny knowing that parts two and three were written and filmed kind of all together. They obviously interlock really well, like you were saying with that letter handoff, but they feel so different. The second movie is chaotic and bouncing through all these time periods. And the third movie is, you know, much slower paced, mostly just in the old west and i like the third movie it's not something i think of first thing when i think of back to the future i think what i like about it are the slower kind of character moments you see doc brown grow a little bit this love interest clara you just see doc brown and marty interact a little bit more that it kind of starts to make sense why they're friends to begin with and i like the old west stuff it's a hokey light movie that's i think fun to watch but not something i sit around and contemplate you know i might think of like oh, all these neat things of how parts one and two and 
interact, but I like watching part three and I'll watch it if I'm watching the whole trilogy, but it's nothing I'm going to ever seek out on my own. Just, you know, watch that by itself. I feel the same way. If there's one thing that you got to get right when you're completing a story is to complete everyone's story in a satisfying way. And I think they did that with Back to the Future part three. I did feel a sense of closure with all of it, except I will admit, though, seeing Doc and his family in the train and he's just willy nilly with time travel now. Right, <laughs> right. Seems like. mm-hmm. Full Doctor yeah. Who, as Romeo might say. Right. Yeah. I need to bring up the elephant in the room, which is Michael J. Fox playing his great great grandfather that's your elephant in the room but go yeah, ahead and because i have an issue with it i have an issue with this yeah who is then married to his great great grandmother is leah thompson i was trained for two films ew marty mcfly should not oh, ever oh i see what like, you're saying yeah yeah and then <laughs> i'm supposed to accept this pairing by these two actors playing these roles they could have found other actors they just goofy fun right I I know, but still, and it's stereotypical Irish accents, (laughs) not fun of the portrayal of the indigenous people. They could have done better, or at least something different. It would have been interesting if we didn't focus on Marty's ancestors. This was going to be a Doc Brown story. Then maybe we should have gave the McFlys a rest for this film. I believe in the second movie, they say Doc Brown, like his family only got to Hill Valley, I think, in the like the early 1900s or something like that. Like that that's mentioned. His dad isn't from the United States. Of course, States. They, they could have just written it a different way if they wanted to talk about his family or meet Doc Brown's family, but... I'm thinking of that scene near, like, after Marty wins the gunfight, kind of, with Buford. He passes the gun and holster to Seamus. It's this very kind of saccharine scene, and it just feels weird. Is that a fixed point in time that Marty was always going to hand Seamus that gun? Or did he alter the timeline? Because now Seamus got something he wasn't always meant to have. I'm pretty sure it altered the timeline because we're going by the the time logic in the first movie. Like Marty's and Doc's actions in the past kind of change Marty's future. Like his parents are not, they're successful. They're more wealthy. They still live in the same house, strangely. But yeah, he definitely like changes his family and probably himself in a weird way. Which of course, him being a time anomaly wouldn't feel those changes. He'll still be him. Also, just Doc Brown's actions in the third movie. I mean, pretty much living in the town and you now becoming a blacksmith. I mean, he's he's altering the timeline. He's altering like these things that people have. I you want to talk about butterfly effect of time travel changes. He's changing a lot. Because I could argue like if Doc Brown didn't invent anything he was supposed to do and he was a traditional blacksmith, he technically wouldn't have changed the timeline. But you're right. His actions of him building all of these things. But what about like if he introduces two people who don't know each other and they have a kid and they might not otherwise have. I'm just thinking of things like that. Well, the thing is I'm kind of curious and that they never touched on again is Clara was supposed to have an accident and they named that bridge after her, but she never did. Granted, she traveled back to the future with him. So she disappears from time again. So no one knows what happens to her. But still, does that bridge still bear her name? It doesn't because it's called the Eastwood Bridge after uh after Martin McFly yeah 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 it's one of those quick callbacks because Mm -hmm. he has credit I guess for running the train off the bridge they name it after him the way their rule is is like eventually time catches up Mm -hmm. to itself which is why you see the picture how the kids are fading away or how you eventually start to see Marty fading away a little bit because that's time catching up and correcting itself to the changes because I had the same thought Romeo I was like wait wait a second but Claire survived so what does this mean for the bridge and I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, well, <laughs> Under okay. their rules, that makes sense. Okay, so we touched on Marty for a little bit. We're going to get into some of the characters here. Is there anything, Wes, that you wanted to add more about Marty? One of the things that I think is really effective about his character is his height. He's so short. It's constantly like a visual gag in these movies, which I think in all three movies, there's a shot where he initiates a conflict with some version of Biff. The camera pans around Biff and he kind of like straightens back and stands up. Then Marty, like one of Marty's eyeballs is just like peeking over his shoulder. It's yeah. a great visual gag. Um, and it also plays really well into one theme of, I think, all three movies is bullying. It's kind of nice to have a character who, you know, is a little bit of an underdog. And that's also a marked difference from Eric Stoltz playing this character, who, when I looked at the kind of film stills, I mean, he's taller than Crispin Glover. He's not big and muscly or anything, but he, but he has 
kind of a tall, imposing stature, which another reason Michael J. Fox, I think, works so much better in that role. Casting Michael J. Fox, there was a ripple effect to that to another <laughs> casting, and that was for Jennifer. Jennifer was actually supposed to be played by Melora Hardin, who most people will know now as Jan Levinson from The Office. Oh, really? And so what happened was when Michael J. Fox was cast, because he's so much shorter, he's actually shorter than Melora Hardin, noticeably shorter, to the point where they actually, um, I think the producers did a poll with like some of the women who work on the crew. Is this height difference too weird? And they said, yeah, like Marty shouldn't be dating somebody so much taller than him. So they had to recast her for Claudia Wells, who mm. was more appropriately height in comparison to Michael J. Fox. And what's the name of the actress who played Jennifer in the second and third movies? Was it Elizabeth Shue? Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue, who was like a queen during the 80s. <laughs> she was like the big crush, most people's crush who grew up in the 80s. Elizabeth Shue. Wes, which Jennifer do you prefer? Do you prefer Claudia Wells or do you prefer Elizabeth Shue? I think I prefer Claudia Wells. I do too. I think she has better chemistry with Michael J. Fox. I always think of that very iconic scene of of them in the first movie where they're sitting outside like on the bench in the clock tower and talking about going to the lake and I think it's the power of love starts playing and then her dad shows up. She writes her name hastily on the back of that flyer to save the clock tower, which again is one of those cool callbacks later Mm -hmm. in the movie. It was a really satisfying scene and it really kind of sold their chemistry together. Definitely. I love that scene. And I like the character enough where I was like, I was hoping to see more of her in the following films, but you don't really get too much more with her. Kind of a letdown. I think it's kind of a missed opportunity to not involve her in the second one, almost like Clara was involved in the third one, but just kind of like weave her in and out a little bit more in the plot. I mean, she does a few things, but she gets pretty forgotten about after they leave the future sequence. Yeah, they just abandon her. Yeah, literally. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so awkward. Like, Doc knocks her out in the car, and then they pile her in an alleyway, and they're always moving her around. She wakes up for a little bit and gets into some mischief, and then up, knocked out again, and put to sleep on a porch. It's it's just weird. I don't know. Missed opportunity. I still like the film as is, but definitely something they could have done. Do you have any thoughts on Doc that we haven't touched on? I was kind of intrigued by his relationship with his dog companions. There's Einstein in the first movie, who gets kind of just forgotten about. (laughs) If I'm thinking of time, all the effects of their time travel, it almost seems like Einstein and Jennifer are just kind of on a floaty in a river and time is changing and splashing around them. I hope they're okay. I guess we see Jennifer and she's fine, although she looks different. But yeah, and then they go back in time and was it Copernicus, the name of the dog? Yeah, it was Copernicus. Obviously the same dog. Kind of a fun callback. I kind of wish Doc Brown had a dog in the third movie. Me too. All right, so I think it's time to talk about Crispin Glover. Because <laughs> he is an enigma. <laughs> you mean he's so Mr. good in the first movie. <laughs> he is. And you know what's funny is that, I mean, he's doing a lot of Crispin Gloverisms mm-hmm. to that character, really. Uh, to a point where it was actually annoying Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it was. Like, he was actually, to a degree, he was very annoyed with his performance. I think he wanted him to be more pulled back than he was. But, I mean, he added his own touch to the character and it absolutely worked. I think to this day, even though I don't see Crispin Glover in a ton of things, to this day, this is his best performance. I think he's just flawless in this character, both in 1955 and in 1985. I just love how we hear the story that Lorraine is explaining about how he got hit by the car and then, you know, she helped him when he was injured and, you know, they fell in love, etc. And then when we go to the past and we found out, oh, that situation happened because he was being a peeping Tom. Yeah. You know, it just kind of sheds it in a whole new light. You're just like, oh, man, this guy. And I also loved Leah Thompson as Lorraine but in both timelines. I think she's just really, really good. And now we get to the Oedipus complex. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of this? Some people, it really does gross them out to a point. But how do you interpret what's going on there? It doesn't bother me. It's just movie fun. It's one of those, like, what if horror moments? Like, what if you met your mom when she was young and she was attracted to? You. It's kind yeah. of weird because you grow up with your parents and you have some level of personal chemistry with them, right? Yeah. And then to go back and meet them earlier in life, you're probably still going to have some of that chemistry with them, but it might be misinterpreted, which is a really weird thing to think about. I think the subplot is funny and it works and it works, I think, because it has a nice conclusion in the end. You know, Lorraine pushes herself on uh, Calvin Klein as she knows him and she's immediately grossed out and like, this is wrong. This is not right. And it ends everything between them. If it 
wasn't for that kind of clever bit. It's I, like I'm kissing my brother. Yeah. And that's a good point. I mean, really, that's the line that saves the whole movie. If that is in any way different, then I don't think it works. It might even ruin the whole movie. It almost hinges on that. Romeo, when you watched it, did you think that the movie kind of hinged on that plot line? To be honest with you, I honestly don't know. Yeah, they played up for gags like, oh, Marty's mom's hot for Marty, which is completely weird. But I think they went about it a weird way that sort of was a theme that you really don't know our parents in a sense, because clearly at the beginning of the film, they set up that Leah Thomas' character is like, girls shouldn't be acting that way at your age. But yet when we go back in time, we meet her at the same age as her sister or her daughter, rather. She was chastising that she's acting the, the same exact way. And it's supposed to sort of symbolize that we don't think of our parents as actual human beings. They're just mom and dad. But before they had us, they had a whole different life type of deal. It's an old line. But, like every generation thinks they're the ones to invent sex. Exactly. <laughs> but unfortunately, they went about it in such a creepy way. <laughs> it kind of creeps me out and rightfully so. And of course, we, along with Marty, are like, hell no. I think and one then, reason that it works for me is that I read Lorraine's character as not being like as in love with Calvin Klein as much as she's just ready for a romantic fling, especially with somebody from outside of her town who's a little bit mm-hmm. different. She's thirsty, man. Yeah, I think she's projecting <laughs> all of her ideas of romance onto this like new, mysterious, intriguing person. And it all falls apart when she actually kisses him. At the same time, they didn't have to go there. And they had to have some reason that the whole plot of the movie kind of hinges on that, right? Like Marty screws up the meeting of his father and mother. Yeah, I think it's kind of core to the plot as is. And one last character I think we should cover is Biff. So good. (laughs) So if I had to make a list of iconic villains, I think Biff is in my top five. I just think that Thomas F. Wilson is perfect. And I love our introduction to him. It's just his tone is just really good. And like, he's like, hey, McFly. Hello, McFly. Is there anything in there? <laughs> just like, oh, my God. He is the perfect bully. <laughs> yeah. And he's such a fun bully. I mean, some unsavory elements of the first movie notwithstanding. I mean, let that thing like, hello, McFly. It's just so fun to watch him bully Marty and bully his, well, not only is Buford Tannen a distinct character, but there's also, um, what is it, Biff's grandson in the second movie in the future part, Riff. And he plays all these characters pretty distinctly. Like, they're all obviously very similar, but they all have kind of their own little flair, as well as the 1980s version of Biff, both versions, I guess three versions. You've got the old Biff at the start of the movie, the old bully Biff. Yeah. And then when they end the first movie, you've got kind of the more submissive old Biff or middle-aged Biff. And then, of course, you have that very Donald Trump-style Biff in the alternate <laughs> 80s version in the second movie, which I believe was directly inspired by Donald Trump. It had to uh, have been, right? It just right. got too on the nose. It's, it's very on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> the part where he's like in his office and like sitting behind like a massive like portrait of himself with like flowing <laughs> hair and everything in a row. <laughs> so icky. Wes, if you haven't seen this, because Thomas F. Wilson, he's very versatile. He's done voice acting. He's He does stand-up. He has this stand-up song that he does singing his experiences of being recognized on the streets and being asked questions about Back to the Future. It's hilarious. You should really look it up. It's about a minute long. There's one line, especially about Crispin Glover, that's really good. After we're done here, you should definitely look that up. It's really, really good. Yeah, um, I'd love to see that. He voiced Biff in the cartoon, too. He's been very well invested, uh, at least in those times to be involved in the franchise. Um, that must have been a fun role to play. Probably the most fun. Maybe not fun with Eric Stoltz, but definitely <laughs> <laughs> the most fun when Michael J. Fox came into the scene. <laughs> I was always impressed with the aging makeup on Biff and on uh, George McFly. The aging makeup is really good, both in the 1980s and, well, it's a whole other thing with the 2015 non-Crispin Glover, Crispin Glover. You know, Biff's makeup is really good, too. What do you two think of the aging or barely aging of Doc. Like, his hair changes a little bit, and, you know, like, his skin's more wrinkly in the 1980s Did, in the first movie, but he does not look I love the, younger. I Did love they the explain joke. it, though? He peeled off that yeah. layer of... But he looked exactly the same. Yeah, he got <laughs> facial rejuvenation, so he never yeah. ages. I just kind of figure that after a point, he would just kind of, like, lose track of how old he actually is. That's Style. just his <laughs> yeah, stasis. There's just some people who've looked the same for, like, 40 years. Like, Sean Connery, to me, had looked the same for, like, like 40 oh, yeah. years. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, I guess you could say is a good example. Larry David, like if you watch season one of Curb and the latest season, 
version of Curb. You can tell on his neck that there's some more wrinkles there, but the guy has basically looked the same <laughs> the entire time, you know? Paul Patrick Stewart Rudd, has also been old for ages. Yes. I swear to God, Paul Rudd, from when he was on Friends to Ant-Man, barely has aged a day. Same with Jared Leto. I assume Jared Leto's like thousands of years old. <laughs> He's a vampire. <laughs> he creeps me out. Oh, he should creep you out. <laughs> he claims it's not a cult, but come on, it's a cult. <laughs> if PBS wrote an article saying it'd be a cult, but I'm going to believe PBS. But I, I didn't think too much about it. But now, Romeo, that you mentioned the rejuvenation thing, that checks out. I mean, that explains why his face isn't as wrinkly in the second and third movies. But like in the first movie, he doesn't seem 30 years younger when they go in the past. We talked about plenty of high points. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you view Wes as a high point? You know, I know we touched on kind of the branding a little bit, but I think it might be interesting to go into that just a little bit more. I think that's like such an essential part of these movies. And I have mixed feelings about it. You know, in a lot of movies and stuff, they show like the weird Windows Surface laptops or HP phones. And it feels so artificial because people aren't using these things that much in real life. But all the branding and product placement in Back to the Future seems pretty effective. I think there's only one scene in the first movie where like the DeLorean peels out in the parking lot in the Twin Pines Mall and it kind of zooms in on the Goodyear tire and I was like, yeah, okay, that's kind of weird. But you know, for the most part, a lot of the branding really like places you in the moment and it also plays an important role with kind of showing the passage of time, like the Pepsi logo changing and the types of Pepsi being available, changing and getting Marty into an awkward position, trying to trying to order a Pepsi free, for example. I love that line that Doc says, you need to go to Cafe 80s. By the way, they completely got the 80s wrong, but just go with it. That sounds right. <laughs> if you like were to do like a 90s or early 2000s cafe a couple of years from now, and if any one of us walked in there, we're like, we never did any of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I would go for a Cafe 90s. I'd be interested uh, to see what that looks like. Does the product placement like rub either of you the wrong way. I mean, it's so prevalent throughout all the movies and kind of blatant. But it, it didn't. Yeah, exactly. It didn't. It works because it just makes sense that if you're going to the future, of course, you're curious about what some of these brands are doing technology and food wise. And uh, like, it would just make total sense that what are Nike shoes like? What flavors of Pepsi exist? How many Jaws movies have there been? Like, it just makes sense that there would be all these product placement moments. So it didn't bother me at all. I felt like it's very much ingrained in what into the setting of, of how we need to tell the story. You know what it is for me? I grew up in that time period where there was a blatant product placement and media that I grew up watching because if a kid saw it in a film, they're going to beg their parents to get it for them for the next major holiday is usually Christmas. So I'm kind of curious to see like kids now because they put a lot in where they sort of they make it as blatant for the product placement stuff if it bugged them. It wouldn't be a like a summer film if I didn't have a fast food chain, a major soda or candy company, a car um, sponsorship, and subtype of technology. Either Apple or Microsoft products blatant. Wes, do you have a favorite quote? Make like a tree and get out of here. <laughs> All of Biff's misquotes. They're so fun. Right. I mean, so, it's such a quotable movie. Yeah, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious some serious shit. shit. <laughs> I was surprised by the language they got away with that. I was surprised about <laughs> Well, we talked about this in our Jaws episode where right. back then you had PG and you had R. And right. so things were just a little bit more lenient back then. Am I getting this line right? Holy shit, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. I believe yeah. that's the right quote. Wait a minute, Doc, are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? <laughs> the way, the way I, see, I it, Marty, see it, Marty, you're going to build a time machine. You got to do it with some style. <laughs> that first movie, there are so many good lines. It's fantastic. And of course, there's Great Scott, which is a great, great one. You would one think the DeLorean would have come back in style, and it didn't. It's the perfect car, too, because like you send it back in time to... To the the pine barn or whatever and they see it they think it's like a spaceship you oh, know yeah, it was like suicide door or gold wing doors yeah i read an anecdote i think it was on wikipedia that ford tried to get them to switch to using a ford mustang in the movie and offered like seventy five thousand dollars. oh wow and bob gale was like there is no way doc brown does not drive a mustang no way exactly <laughs> doc is the guy that sees something that other people doesn't value and sees something like see its potential yeah wasn't DeLorean like dead as a company for like five years by the time they made this movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think it died out in the early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's the DMC DeLorean. It was in production from 81 to 82, and the year model was 81 to 83. But it's the perfect car for this movie, because you do need something that's so distinct and something that is just of its time and of its kind. And you just don't get that from a Mustang, because we've no. had so many different versions of Mustangs. It just it wouldn't hit the same that the DeLorean hits. I'm so glad they came up with that concept because they had this other idea where it was like it was basically something that was like on the back of a truck and they would get into it and that was how they travel time. Was there an idea for like a refrigerator at one point or something like that? Yeah, that's what it was. It was a refrigerator that was like on the bed of a truck and they would like go into it that way and that's how they would travel time. And that's just silly to me. I don't think anyone can think of a DeLorean these days without thinking of Back to the Future. Of course oh, 100%. not. 100%. Of course not. The only time a DeLorean shows up is because they're referencing Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Like there's no other reason to feature a DeLorean. Unless you're like someone who really studied the history of cars growing up and that's how you learn about the DeLorean. Yeah, exactly. You don't learn about this car without Back to the Future. So, Wes, I think it's safe to say that if there's one film you would show someone to get them interested, it would probably be the first one, right? Definitely. I mean, I like the second one a lot, but it hinges on enjoying the characters of, and oh. situation of the first movie. Let's say someone doesn't want to commit to the entire series. Do you have a recommended viewing order to help with the experience? If you're unsure, just the first one. I would definitely say you got to watch the first one. And I said, if you love what you watched, you might enjoy some things about the second one. It's tough because the second one and third one are so like... It traps you in the third one. You have to watch it. Exactly. So I would say if you're going to watch the second one, you're going to have to watch the third one. So you're in it for the long haul. I will say this. You can stop at the first one. It was a complete film and I argue they probably should have stopped at the first one or did something completely wildly different. Doc Brown could always have a different companion, which they could have kept the series going with a different companion. When you have a time machine, of course, a lot of times you think about the future, right? And I know the end of the first movie was just kind of like a goofy ending, not really a setup for a sequel. But the fact that, you know, there's a sequel these days, I don't know how that just doesn't grab you. Like, don't you want to see what the 80s version of the future is? We talked about a lot of other material to enrich the Back to the Future experience. I talked about the Back to the Future video game that Telltale Games made part of a licensing deal with Universal Pictures. We talked about how Bob Gale assisted in writing the game's story. And I want to give credit to the guy that I mentioned earlier who took the cutscenes and edited them into like their own films. And his name is Adam Korolik. So he made a Back to the Future Part 4 and a Back to the Future Part 5 out of those cutscenes. And I recommend watching them if you guys are fans of the film series because it is, it really does feel like you're watching two totally canonical films and they're very satisfying. Big credit to him on making that happen. The other thing is we got this short that came out a few years ago, was in 2015, right, to commemorate Back to the Future Day, Doc Brown Saves the World. I don't know if you've seen this, Wes. No. Doc, he's in an undisclosed location outside of Hill Valley. He sets a video camera to track his body in order to videotape a message for Marty. He explains that on October 21st in 2015, one hour before Marty, Doc, and Jennifer arrived from 1985, that when he traveled to the future, he discovered that there was a nuclear holocaust that occurred on October 21st, 2045. And he tracked it down to four inventions, the food hydrator, self-lacing shoes, the hoverboard, and the Mr. Fusion home energy reactor. I haven't watched the whole thing. I only watched a little bit. I didn't have time. Yeah, that's some extra content. So Christopher Lloyd, he's an interesting guy because it's like he's reprised his character many a time, including Back to the Future, the animated series because every episode begins with him and then we get into the cartoon. And the funny thing is that Doc is voiced by Dan Castanelanetta, the man who voices Homer Simpson, among many other voices. Very strange. And then the end of the episode, we're back with Doc Brown again and he's basically leading up to how you can make like your own home science experiment. Uh, It's basically for kids. The show kind of like acted as a educational show for kids to an extent. And the science experiments were performed by his assistant who didn't have any lines and that assistant is Bill Nye the science guy really yeah it was his television debut was being in this cartoon oh so you're saying this cartoon was bookended on either end with live action scenes almost like the Super Mario Brothers animated series exactly oh okay yeah. when did this debut uh, 1991 on CBS huh. so yeah 
there's the cartoon. I don't really recommend it. You can watch a few episodes. You can maybe find them on YouTube. They're pretty hard to find. So you can buy them, of course. But I mm. had to get the DVDs through a library that's not even in our county system just <laughs> so <laughs> I could watch them. And it focuses a lot on Jules and Vern. I find them very unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like we mentioned, the Back to the Future, the musical, which is, of course, based on the film. And it does include songs like The Power of Love and Johnny Be Good. I hope that I can see this one day. It hasn't had a chance to debut to the masses because of COVID-19. But from the little snippet I saw, I was like, this is actually pretty cool. And I would totally watch this in person if given the opportunity. So, yeah, I hope that makes a, a wider release. I would love to see that. That'll be interesting to see how that works on as a musical. It wouldn't be the first 80s film. I mean, we got Heathers. We got Beetlejuice. Why not Back to the Future? Exactly. So here's the biggest question, I think, of the entire show, Wes. And that is, would you want a reboot or a continuation series? <laughs> uh, no. Okay. I, think... I know that's like a big question in the world. Like, oh my God, what if they remake Back to the Future and it's terrible? Zemeckis yeah. and Gale are refusing to let it happen. And I don't think we'll ever get it until the two of them die. Right. <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen in some form at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's such a self-contained, wonderful little film trilogy that I guess the only interesting like continuation would almost be like a Picard style thing where it's Michael J. Fox and everyone else. It yeah. Would be hard. Well, Michael J. Fox is basically retired from acting. It was pretty cool to see him and Christopher Lloyd do that Jimmy Kimmel skit a few years ago. Forgot to mention that earlier, but they did a cool sketch with him. They're in their original outfits from the movie, and you can tell that they're just having a great time. I'll have to look that up. That sounds yeah. great. And so all I can say about bringing it back is that they miss their windows every time to like find the perfect Doc and Marty. I wouldn't have been mad four or five years ago if they said Tom Holland is going to be Marty McFly. Like I know that gets like fan casted a lot, but it's true. Oh. I think he maybe would have been a good Marty McFly. Early 2000s if they said fresh off of even Stevens, Shia LaBeouf is going to be Marty McFly. I wouldn't have been that uh, mad about I it. thought of <laughs> casting, I'm not going to lie. Interesting. <laughs> right? Yeah, I could right? see that. There's these like every 10 years, there's like this certain actor who can totally pull off Marty. It's Doc where I have a hard time trying to pinpoint. I think it wouldn't be that hard. Like, I don't know if you knew this, but John Lithgow was heavily considered to play Doc for the original film. Oh, that makes God, a lot of sense. That would have been amazing. Yeah, he would have been very good, I think. I think oh, yeah. he still can. That's, and that's my point. I think he could still do it if you he know, wanted. You know, I would actually still have Doc, but a whole new, per- like a whole new companion. That might be a better option. And we can explain that, oh, Doc, when the future had a mishap with the facial rejuvenation thing, now he looks like this now. Boom, we're good. <laughs> Hop back in the DeLorean. Because I would like to see a female lead, like along with Doc. I think it would be Do- cool to see like a, like a not not a goth girl, like a punk girl play the role uh, that we, Marty played. Dare we say e-girl? E-girl, no, uh, no. You could definitely find the perfect young teenage woman to play the role. It just seems like if they ever do it, they're going to do something annoying like Kate McKinnon is your doc. It's just too delicate. Like the first why, movie. Why are perfect. we throwing Kate Mckibben under the bus? She always plays like weird characters, right? And, that's her brand. That's and I know brand. that's her brand, but that's what I'm saying. Like that doesn't mean she should play Doc Brown. I want something more creative, like an Emma Thompson who I've seen play oh, weird, quirky yeah. characters, but nothing like Doc Brown. Okay, hear me out. Completely just weird casting altogether. Aubrey Plaza. <laughs> she would be weird and quirky enough that I'm like, you know what? Let's let's roll with it. Let's see what happens. I feel like she's more of a Rick from Rick and Morty type. It's fun to think about it, though, to be honest, like trying to figure out who would you cast if they ever decide to do it. But I hope it never happens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I. you guys are right in the sense that it's just one of those films that's just perfect. And I get annoyed when people or at least movie studios have this weird need of going back to find a sure thing so they can make money because ultimately it doesn't work because nothing's ever going to live up to the original. So, yeah, let's not remake Back to the Future. Let, let it live on on streaming sites or whatever feature physical media that comes out 20 years from now. Okay, so we're winding down here. Wes, briefly discuss who you think would enjoy Back to the Future. I mean, obviously anyone from like our general generation, I think, if they haven't seen it yet or missed that in childhood like Romeo did. Honestly, I I don't know. I I don't talk to a lot of like significantly younger people than myself. So I'm wondering if people, kind of the zennials, like would this movie appeal to them? Would this trilogy appeal to them? I think it's fun enough for everyone to kind of get behind, but um, I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, it's something that 
I definitely would like to show my future child. Yeah. At, le- at least the first one and maybe the mm-hmm. second one just to see, yeah, what their impression is. And I think that's how this movie franchise lives is through those people in their 30s and 40s who are showing it to their kids. Maybe the people in their 50s and 60s showing it to their grandkids. And that's just how it sort of survives. Because like we talked about earlier, they're not making new movies. They're not making new TV shows. So it kind of has to live and hopefully continue to live through those shared family experiences of being exposed to those films. Because unless you're a film buff, I don't know if you go out of your way as a 14 year old, 15 year old to watch Back to the Future. I would say it's a tough sell because it's like it's a time travel movie. Okay, well, there's like hundreds of those. What makes this one better? You know, and I argue that they probably are because if they're big Rick and Morty fans, you're going to go back and watch Back to the Future because Dan Harmon pretty much borrowed from Back to the Future. And I feel like it's still culturally relevant in the sense that it's quoted often enough. I mean, as long as Christopher Lloyd is going to bring up Doc Brown and commercials and many little things, it'll keep going. So I think that it'll be part of the zeitgeist for a while. If you're interested enough or if you if you want to earn your like nerd cred, you're going to go watch this film. Can we just talk about real quick, Huey Lewis and the news, Power of Love and Back in Time, both of those songs slap so hard. Back in Time has been stuck in my head for like the last week. <laughs> <laughs> he had a cameo in the first film as like one of the talent show judges oh, and really? he wanted to make sure that he didn't look like too uncool. Like he had an image to uphold, you know? Oh, <laughs> dear God. I think Back to the Future was one of the first movies where I was conscious of the fact that soundtracks existed and that was, I believe I tracked it down and got like the uh, cassette version of the uh, the soundtrack. Okay, so we're going to make some similar suggestions for shows and franchises that viewers might also enjoy. The one that correlates with us the most through our research is Bill and Ted. It's fun, it's time travel, two likable main characters who are buddies and you get some really good music in there. I think it's just the easiest one to suggest for fans. If people like Back to the Future and they want to try other things, Bill and Ted is definitely the one. Do you have any that comes to mind for you, Wes? I would definitely say like Rick and Morty, the TV show, Mm -hmm. obviously a very different thing, but Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon obviously played off of uh, Back to the Future. And I I think that show got started as like a direct parody of Back to the Future um, that they then had to change the characters a little bit around and make them slightly more distinct. That's pretty fun. I want to throw out, it's not really quote unquote time travel, but I feel like Pleasantville has a similar thing about present day kids going to a 1950s era. If you like Back to the Future, you might like Pleasantville as well. Have you seen that one, Wes, Pleasantville? No, I have not. Okay, it's it has a- Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon and Steve Buscemi, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Fun cast. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good cast. It's beautifully shot and really funny. Let's just say, if you like those Oedipal complex joke type of humor, you'll enjoy this film. Hey, we did it. We talked about the Back to the Future films. Wes, thanks so much for coming back. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. Wonderful to talk with you, too. Is there anything that you want to plug? If anyone wants to check out my Instagram, Wes Adam Riddle. I'd love to throw up photos of outdoor adventures. Great photos, too. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Listeners, stay tuned for Final Thoughts and Mailbag. Welcome back. This was a great discussion. It was really great to have Wes back. I get along great with Wes because it's just kind of like he just sees things for what they are, and that's just movie fun. There's a lot of fun to be had with these movies. It's always tricky with these movie franchises because you want to talk about certain movies a lot more than other ones. Mm -hmm. But I think we did a pretty good job balancing all three well because I did have some questions about those sequels, and I made sure to bring them up to Wes and really helped expand the discussion and also helped you bring up some of your gripes of wanting to stay away from Western. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Did you enjoy yourself? I did. I had a good time. Wes is always the fun person to talk movies with for all the reasons that you gave because you always find something that I always tend to overlook about movies or about whatever franchise we're talking about. I'm like, oh yeah, good point. Then I feel stupid internally for the next like three days. Like, why did I see it before Wes did? (laughs) But yeah. Back to the Future is interesting for me being someone who's 
experience it at a much later time. Yeah, so like the Jaws episode, the recording for Back to the Future had to get delayed by almost a week. Wes wasn't feeling well on the day of the recording, so we had to move it. Even me putting this episode together, I've been up against the clock because I had to undergo a recent move. I'm just glad that I was able to get it all done and and we got it released on the day that was originally planned. So Wes brought up the alternate Back to the Future part two script, and he said that he was trying to find it online and had a difficult time finding it. Well, I was able to find it, and I will be sure to share it with you guys on our Facebook page. I found it on the Internet Archive way back machine. It's a pretty cool place. I've used this before to find things that you really couldn't find anywhere else on the internet. And it does have the full alternate script to Back to the Future part two. It's 147 pages. If you have a free weekend, give it a read. So Romeo brought up when Doc's family even arrived in Hill Valley. And there is accurate background to that. Doc's family moved to Hill Valley from Germany in 1908. And it's just worth noting that because Back to the Future part three is set in 1885. Because Romeo was kind of playing with the idea of what other types of stories they could have told for Back to the Future Part 3 because he wanted to get away from the Western setting or mm-hmm. at least take focus away from Marty's family. Is So just wanted to note that Doc's family didn't actually arrive until 1908. And we also brought up in Back to the Future Part 2, when Marty goes back to 1985 only to discover that it's basically a dystopia being ran by Biff. We joked around that was Biff inspired by Donald Trump in this timeline. And Bob Gale does confirm in an interview with the Daily Beast that, yes, he is inspired by Donald Trump, which is just absolutely no surprise. Ain't that right, Romeo? (laughs) You know, I mean, even to Marty's mom looking like the first wife, Ivana. All right, so that does it for the Back to the Future discussion. Now moving on to the mailbag. Nothing in the mailbag this week, but we have been seeing a really nice uptick in our social media thanks to our audiograms. So that's been really cool. Hopefully those audiograms can turn into more emails. Hopefully they can turn into more comments. Hopefully they can turn into more follows. You can find us on Instagram at Binge Essentials and you can find us on Facebook at Binge Essentials or also on facebook.com forward slash Binge Essentials. You can always email us if you have any questions or comments about the show. Binge Essentials at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can find Romeo at rmoro 2 and you can find me on Twitter at David Rocha Radio and Romeo at rmoro one Time to tease next week's episode. Next week we're doing Shit's Creek, the very show that me and Romeo were always hesitant to say on public radio. We can now say it in podcast form. Shit's exactly. Creek. Because <laughs> you know what, David? It's our turn to take a selfish. And now we're going to indulge ourselves in Shit's Creek. Absolutely. And joining us to talk about Shit's Creek is Rena. She'll be joining us for the first time on the show. And it was a really fun discussion that I think you guys are going to enjoy. We're talking about somebody who has seen the show multiple times and someone who is definitely going to make multiple appearances on Binge Essentials over the next few months. Well, that's everything. So with all that being said, thanks for listening. Catch you guys next week.